Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. We're joining you today for a special Zoom version of our topical podcast uh, for one very good reason, which is that none of us can get to the office particularly easily because the trains are all on strike. So the first section of our podcast will be dedicated to the RMT's action this week. Um, We'll talk a bit about that about some of the government's arguments to do with uh, inflation and whether or not wage rises will cause inflation and whether or not we are indeed going back to the 1970s as the papers seem very fond of reminding us this week. We'll then move on to a paper that our parent organisation the Centre for Policy Studies has produced this week about online sales tax. It's a very popular idea, it keeps rearing its head and we have set out just why it is such a bad idea. It's something we definitely don't want to do when the country seems to be heading into recession. To discuss all that, as ever, we have our excellent deputy editor, Alice Denby. Hello, Alice. Hello. And our head of tax from the Centre for Policy Studies, the velvet-voiced Tom Clockerty. Tom, welcome. Hi, John. Guys, we'll kick off with those strikes. I mean, if nothing else, a a giant pain in the arse for an enormous number of people. Um, the RMT have deliberately, I think, done it on alternate days to bring maximal disruption. So the 21st, the 23rd and the 25th. Uh, we're recording this on the 24th. So we've had um, uh, a couple of, well, today is one, sorry, we're recording this on the 23rd, which is the second of the strike days. Um, I mean, what's, is there any justification for this? What do we think, Alice? I mean, the, the general, the argument from the RMT is, that they want more job security and a pay rise that keeps, if not keeps pace with inflation, then gets a bit closer to it. I mean, what do we think about this? Look, inflation obviously affects everyone. Uh, you have to sympathise with people wanting to see their pay packets reflect you know, the reality that things are getting more expensive. But I find it extremely difficult to sympathise. Frankly, people in the public, sorry, in the private sector are not getting pay rises anything close to this. People, uh, taxpayers paid enormous amounts of money to keep the trains running empty throughout the pandemic. People in the public sector have far greater job security than those in the private sector. Um, and and as I say, they, they, they these strikes affect everyone who needs to, to use the trains. Um, and I think it's selfish and unjustified. I mean, Tom, we should talk a bit about 
in terms of the reasons for this strike, I mean, Mick Lynch, the head of the RMT, one of his arguments is that, yes, there is a lot of subsidy in the railways, but, but a lot of that subsidy is essentially being funneled to private companies and turning up as, as profit. I mean, is there anything to that? Because we do have this very strange system in the UK of a kind of semi-privatised railway where network rail is basically nationalised and owns all the track and, and kit, um, but then private companies run the actual trains. It, it is a bit of an odd system, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, and it's not just a question of um, a state-owned company owning the tracks and, and, the, and, and all that kind of thing. Um, I mean, the Department for Transport basically runs the railways, which, which is to say they tell the private companies what to do, what their schedules should be, what their prices should be. Um, it's not a private industry in any meaningful sense. Um, I mean, private sector involvement probably does and has delivered some sort of efficiencies and um, better customer service and, and all that kind of thing over the years. Certainly the railways, um, from a passenger perspective, are in better shape than they were um, in the dark days of British Rail. Um, but yeah, you're right. We have a, a weird, very weird hybrid structure, um, which doesn't really please anybody. Um, and I think we're moving back towards a greater degree, even greater degree, um, of central government control with the sort of Great British Railways development. And there may be benefits to that because they're going to try and pursue greater integration between um, the track and the train, as they put it. Um, so the underlying infrastructure and the services running on it. I think there are plans to sort of simplify pricing structure, ticketing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, maybe those are consumer uh, benefits, but we don't have a private competitive railway industry really. Um, we're not likely to soon. And actually that manifests itself in these kind of long running labor disputes, because if you had a system that was more decentralized, more competitive, sure, you would still get labor issues, um, but they wouldn't be such a sort of national talking point, I think. So, Alice, just moving on to the politics of this, um, I think it's fair to say to anyone who listens to this podcast or reads CapEx uh, that, you know, none of us is particularly in favour of union militancy or mass industrial action. But one thing I've found strange this week is that certain conservatives have been saying that this is a, a kind of preview of, of a Labour run Britain. I mean, to me, that makes no sense, really. You can't call something a preview when it is literally happening on your watch. Um, I mean, what's your take on this? And the, the kind of government seems oddly passive in all this. They keep saying it's not up for them to negotiate. I think, you know, something of this magnitude, they ought to be there. Well, obviously, Labour didn't cause these problems, but perhaps this is me being a kind of tribal conservative. But I actually do think that it's fair enough to question which side Labour are on in this. I mean, they're funded by the trade unions. That means that they're always going to put the needs of, of one set of workers who just happen to be union members above all the other people who are affected by the strikes. And I thought David Willits um, had a really interesting article in Conservative Home this week. So he obviously worked for Margaret Thatcher. And um, he made a good point that, that the difficulty is that Labour will always be in a better position to make deals with the trade unions. So Conservatives, if they want to keep control of public sector pay, have to find a way to bypass the trade unions. Um, so, and it's, so it's not only an economic imperative for the government to stay firm on this, it's a political one too. And I think that might explain what you described as a kind of passivity, that they're just not getting involved because there's no point for a Conservative government to try and negotiate with trade unions. Sure. I mean, Tom, we talked a bit in your previous answer about 
um, you know, this, the 70s uh, element. Does this really compare? I was looking at the number of strike days lost, and it's absolutely piddling now compared to what it was back then. Although, historically, if you really want the high point of British striking, you have to go to the mid-20s when uh, it's a kind of it's soaring Everest of strike days, even compared to the 70s. I wonder if in the 70s they used to, the papers used to say they're taking us back to the 20s. Yeah, I, quite possibly. No, I, I don't think we're back in the 70s. I mean, I get where uh, those comparisons are coming from. We have high inflation, we have low growth, and we have these emerging signs of industrial unrest. But we're a long way from the kind of situation that we were in um in, in the late 1970s uh you know and in fact i think because of the reforms that were made um because you know uh, union power was significantly decreased both through sort of union legislation um, but also through privatization and deregulation and reform of those nationalized industries um it's very hard to produce the kind um of mass labor action that that perhaps you've seen in the past um so no i don't think that we're sliding back towards the 70s although obviously it does make for good headlines and what do you think about sorry alice yeah go on i, I mean obviously I, I agree but there is there's a kind of feeling just in the air of national decline and it's not just in national sort of nationalized industries if you look at what's happening with the airlines uh and vacancies i mean basic public services just aren't running properly because they're just understaffed so there is this kind of feeling, I mean, obviously I wasn't around in the 70s, but this feeling that we're just in a kind of downward spiral. I think that's perhaps, again, uh, all three of us were born in the mid 80s. So I think it's difficult to comment too authoritatively about exactly what life was like in the 70s. There is a sense, that there's definitely a malaise um, in this country. I mean, I think a lot of that is, some of it is because we've had you know, since the financial crisis, I feel like we've never really recovered from the financial crisis. And you look at the data on wages and stuff like that, the average person hasn't really seen their wages pick up. Obviously, and one thing we never talk about is that people get promoted. So ordinary people, yeah, their salaries will go up over time, you know, as part of a career path. But yeah, basically, the average worker has, has not seen their living standards improve for a decade. So I guess it's not that surprising. Um, Tom, you want to come into it? Yeah, well, no, John, I think that that to me is the really interesting aspect of all of this, um, it, not just about uh, should railway station staff be paid more or even the larger question of do the railways need modernization, more automation? And does that lead to, to fewer staff in the long term? You know, I think that that's absolutely true. And that's why the government's right to hold a line on this issue. Um, but the broader issue of whether this is the beginning um, of more and more dissatisfaction and open unrest um, about our sort of economic stagnation. As you say, uh, wages were flat for a long time. Uh, but what you've got to remember is that actually take home pay was still sort of kept afloat um, by by tax cuts um, throughout the coalition and, and the Cameron years. Uh, now, of course, the government says they're in favour of low taxes. They want to cut taxes, um, but taxes do seem to keep going up. Um, and so increasingly, I think it's going to be hard for the government to create any kind of um, feel good factor um, for ordinary workers in the UK. And so does that spill over into politics in a way that it, it has not hasn't to such a great extent so far? Um, that to me is the big problem, because if you're if you have a society where everyone is fighting over a fixed pie, 
um, there's going to be a lot of unrest. There'll be social tensions, there'll be um, political chaos. We've seen signs of that already, I think. Um, the solution is growth. If the pie is growing uh, and everyone can have more, uh, then everyone is much happier and everything works more smoothly. Um, and are we just reaching the point where the elastic band snaps uh, and people say they've had enough and we need to see some sort of economic improvements at long last? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe. But that, of course, the response to that can go one of two ways. Um, you can do what Margaret Thatcher did uh, and respond in a free market way. Um, or I think you can sell false solutions about the government getting involved uh, and fixing everything themselves. Uh, and of course, that just makes things worse in the long run. We'll see which direction things go. I, I'm not massively optimistic at the moment, I have to say. Yeah, uh, there well, you are. Yeah, I think the other thing is you've mentioned the kind of economic um, approaches, but politically, I feel like a lot of the the government, this government seems to prefer the sugar rush of a culture war battle because it's so much easier than doing the, the hard spade work. I mean, Alice, what do you think about when we, it feels to me as if that's a sign, not, it's not really a sign of strength if you're reverting to talking about, I don't know whether it's trans rights or um, wokery or whatever number of topics that are actually for a lot of people quite peripheral to their everyday lives. Yeah, um, it does feel like this government comfort zone is you know the sort of wedge issues as it would call them that that it thinks are popular so I mean, even things like um the rwanda policy um you, th you think the echr overruling british courts was actually a gift to this government because it puts them much back on much more comfortable territory of, of talking about you know supranational bodies telling us what to do um and that feels like that's fighting the previous war um, and what what we should be doing is actually achieving things, you know, to, to help people with the cost of living, which is really affecting them right now. Yeah, I, I think I put in my last piece on the, my weekend briefing that people, are, I think people are generally more interested in kind of solutions than they are in enemies. They'd rather see, I, don't, I doubt the average punter is that that bothered about the ins and outs of the arguments about train strikes for example compared to how bothered they are about whether they can get on a train um tom we'll move on now to the to a paper that you have co-authored uh, this week we should give a shout out to our colleague elizabeth dunkley as well who was the other author on this and it's about well you mentioned people fighting for a fixed pie and this is slightly a reflection of that because it's about this idea of an online sales tax. Now, there's been a pervasive um, feeling among kind of bricks and mortar retailers that there's an unfair advantage for companies like Amazon and so on. This is always how it's framed. It's always framed as the local shop versus Amazon. Um, and as you say in your report, this is kind of ludicrously simplistic because most businesses these days do a bit of bricks and mortar and a bit of online. Most of them are hybrid. Um, I mean, where do you think this, this impetus for an online sales tax comes from? How powerful are lobbyists behind it? Or how likely do you think is actually to become government policy? Mm. Well, I hope that it's unlikely to become government policy because I think it's a, a truly bad idea. It's one of those ones that um, has so many flaws, it's quite hard to know where to start as you go through them. Um, but where is the idea coming from? Well, so there's there's sort of two ways you can spin that. One is the very limited way in which the government has set forward 
the case for an online sales tax. And by the way, um, the government consulted on an online sales tax earlier this year. The consultation paper was one of the weirdest government uh, pieces I've ever read um, because it actually reads like a carefully composed case against an online sales tax um, as if the civil servants who drew it up uh, are sort of of my mind that this would be a really silly thing to do um, and would cause all kinds of problems. But, but of course, they're consulting on it anyway. Um, and the reason they're consulting, they say multiple times, this is not about punishing or discouraging online retail, which we're very much in favor of. Um, it's simply about raising some money so that we can cut business rates uh, for high street retailers, um, which, which you know, they think is an important objective. And in a way it is, right? There's, there's a big kind of unfairness in the tax system that uh, traditional retailers, I think pay about 25% of business rates, which is a pretty chunky tax base as well, by the way, um, despite only contributing about 10% of gross value added to the economy. So um, there, is, there is a sort of imbalance there. Um, but okay, there's the broader case for an online sales tax, which people make as well, um, which is simply that I think they don't like big online retailers. Um, they want to tax them because that's where the money is. Um, and they want to sort of protect and encourage a more sort of traditional um, high street experience. Um, and so the government has been very careful to avoid that and to, to keep it narrowed and say, this is just about raising small amount of revenue to pay for a little tax reduction over here. Um, the problems though, I think are, <laughs> there are a lot of problems. So um, first of all, would the government even have raised this idea if they'd known where inflation was going to be right now? Um, the prospect of a government slapping an extra tax on consumers uh, in the middle of a cost of living crisis when they say driving down the cost of living is their overriding objective, um, it seems absolutely perverse. Um, the politics of it uh, seem to me to be pretty disastrous. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and by the way, the impact will fall largely on consumers, even if the government levies the tax um, on sellers based on their total sales. Uh, we know from experience that most of this is going to be passed on um, to consumers. A big technical problem with an online sales tax, because although it sounds pretty simple on paper, um, when you get down to actually defining what would this tax apply to, what counts as an online sale, um, it's a lot more complicated than you think. Um, does click and collect count, for example? What if you sort of submit an order online, but then you phone an automated um, hotline to sort of process the payment? Is that an online sale? Is it a telephone sale? Um, should mail order be treated similarly um, to an online sale? Uh, basically, you get into a position as you think through all of the implications of an online sales tax, where either you are taxing fundamentally similar things very differently, say, a phone sale versus a website sale, or a, I don't know, an online chat sale. Um, you know, a lot of stuff uh, can be sold through instant messaging apps and so on now as well. Or you expand the scope of an online sales tax to apply to a range of things that no one ever thought would count as an online sale. Um, so that 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 is very challenging. And, and we're talking about a tiny amount of revenue here. Um, the kind of revenue that the government is talking about. Uh, raising 
with a new tax, which would be difficult and expensive to implement, not just for the government, but for the businesses that were responsible for collecting it, and that would hit consumers and that would inevitably cause all kinds of distortions between different product categories and different methods of buying things. All these distortions that a, a pro-growth neutral tax system should try really hard to avoid. Um, for all of that hassle, raising an amount of money that you could get by adding like a fraction of a percent to VAT um, or another big existing tax base. So it really, it really doesn't make any kind of practical sense. Um, One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I also think, if I may, I, I worry that I might be waffling a little bit here, but there's a broader conceptual point, I think, around an online sales tax. Um, and I'll borrow an example from um, my friend and, and former CPS, Ryan Bourne. He used this in a column he wrote. But so the argument is online retail is uh, is capitalizing on an unfair advantage because rather than using expensive city center properties, which attract big business rates bills, um, they've worked out that they can use out of town warehouses the rental value of which is much lower, therefore they attract a much lower business rates burden. Um, and this reduces their costs, allows them to outcompete traditional retail, etc. So we should tax them more to level the playing field, right? But to, to use a, a, the example, um, imagine you're running a fast food chain and you have, you know, staff costs will be a big part um, of, of your overall business costs. Um, and the government is increasing those staff costs by like the minimum wage through employment regulations and so on. And so you think my business would do a lot better if I could economize on labor. Um, so I'm going to automate ordering, let's say. Um, and so you've seen these in McDonald's, you'd rather than having, uh, you know, everybody order from a person at the front of the queue, you have the little screens that you put in your order and so on. Um, and you, you, can, you can imagine that across all kinds of different industries. Right. But the logic of the online sales tax would be to say um, we should tax automation because people who automate are gaining an unfair advantage over over people who don't. Uh, and so we need a tax to level the playing field. Uh, or maybe we need a tax to raise money so that we can cut taxes <laughs> on on employment, say, uh, for the people who are relying on staff rather than machines. Uh, and now, obviously, there are some people to whom that argument will appeal. 
Um, but it's very bad economics because that process of um, innovating and searching for lower costs, that's all part of the market at work. And if you start messing with that, um, it's really the beginning of a slippery slope and, and you kind of don't know where you're going to end up. Um, you can see unlevel playing fields everywhere you look, all sorts of them influenced in one way or another yeah. by government policy. Um, you don't want to keep layering one bad policy on top of another, trying to fix the problem that you caused in the first place. Yeah, this reminds me of my favourite analogy for the British tax system, which is it's an alluvial plane of bad policies <laughs> silted up from budget after budget. I just wonder, Alice, we did a piece, um, we published a piece last week that I think really feeds into what Tom was saying. It was called The Great Glass Tax Elevator. Boris and the Great Glass Tax Elevator um, by a guy called Damien Phillips. And he was right. He was saying that the problem is not just the, the, the burden of tax, but the fact that you just don't have a clear sense of where the government's going at any any point. And this kind of floating, even this kind of tax is, is quite a good example of that. It speaks to and it also speaks to that thing of picking kind of boogeymen, in this case, the Amazons and so on, saying, oh, they're bad. Let's have a go at them. Yeah, it's not just the level of taxes, it's the complexity of the system that's a problem in this country too. And, and the Chancellor seems to have a real taste for these kind of fixes and fudges. So, you know, he'll raise national insurance, but then he'll raise the thresholds at the same time to kind of cover it up. Um, yeah. And, you know, for, for a government, for a Conservative government that claims to be wanting to cut taxes, it, it seems to want to make them as complicated as possible. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've complained about. We have an Office of Tax Simplification, which I always think tells its own story. I'm not sure how successful it's been in recent years. Um, Tom, you are literally our head of tax. So I assume you've seen the story this week about it was kind of again, it was floated. It's nowhere near being government policy. But there was a suggestion that we would have a kind of buy British tax break for companies that, well, buy things from the UK. I mean, this is Adam Smith is turning in his grave, surely, hearing this. As a former staffer of the Adam Smith Institute, you should probably are not too happy about it either. Yeah, I'm not sure Adam Smith ever stops turning in his grave. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been to the gravesite. I'm amazed it's not completely churned up by all the turning that's going on. Um, but yeah, no. I, so I think I think first of all. Um, the idea of the buy British tax break um, is is largely fake news. Um, I don't think that the Treasury is seriously considering it. I would be shocked if it made it beyond newspaper speculation to practical policy. Um, but I do I, I can see where it might have come from. And I think where it might have come from is more interesting than the story itself. Now, you can get me back when they introduce the buy British tax break and, and laugh at the- I've left the, the country. Yeah, the little bit of faith I still had left <laughs> in the treasury. Um, but I don't, I, don't think, I don't think they're that foolish. Um, but I think what's going on, so there's this uh, broader debate at the moment about how we treat business investment in the UK. And it's something that the CPS has written about a lot. Um, long story short, we, we're very stingy when it comes to allowing businesses um, to deduct their investment expenses from their corporation tax bills. And perhaps not coincidentally, um, for decades now, we've had really low uh, business investment compared with most other developed countries. Now, as things stand, we have this thing called the super deduction, um, which means you can immediately deduct not just the full cost of your investment, but 130% of the cost of your investment. 
but that's a time-limited policy. It expires next April um, at precisely the moment that the headline corporation tax rate goes up from 19% to 25%. So we're facing a corporate tax cliff edge. Um, we're suffering from low business investment. And basically, as things stand, and if you'll forgive the technical jargon, um, but the marginal effective tax rate on new investment is going to double in a little under a year's time, um, just as we might be slipping into recession or something as well. Terrible idea, uh, and I don't think it's going to happen because, as I said, the government is consulting on what should replace the super deduction, how we should improve our system of capital allowances to make them uh, more generous, more pro-investment, and so on. Now, the problem with that, um, and you know, the, the classic example is just full expensing, 100% upfront deduction of your investment costs, that makes the tax system neutral towards investment, um, whereas at the moment there's, there's a constant bias against it. Um, the problem is it's expensive in revenue terms, at least up front. Um, I think the Treasury said in their consultation document that full expensing would cost um, at its peak about 11 billion a year. 11 billion is money that the Treasury doesn't feel that it has. Um, now that's, that's at a significant, but it's a transitory cost because actually you get a big peak as you introduce full expensing and you're still writing off um, old investments according to the old system, but that falls away pretty quickly and the long run cost is more on the order of, of one or two billion. Um, but I think what's happening is the Treasury is looking at that big upfront cost. Um, they want to introduce something like full expensing, but they're looking at ways to make it less expensive. And so someone has said, well, you know, we could make this a lot less expensive if we had it only for people who buy British. Um, and they'll say, and then there's a, there's a sort of added benefit, a multiplier effect, um, because you're encouraging investment and you're encouraging the investment to be made in Britain. Um, and I suspect that that's, that conversation has happened. Um, and before everyone has paused to think of what a bad idea it is for the tax system to get into um, distinguishing between where you choose to invest as a business um, and all of the distortions that could cause, uh, someone has mentioned it to a reporter and it's made its way into the newspapers. Um, so that is dispiriting um, but I think the broader picture uh, is is maybe a more hopeful one that the government is working towards a proper successor to the super deduction um, which would in a sort of long-term and sustainable way improve our tax system and boost business investment uh, and that should have an impact on wages and growth which is kind of what we we started this podcast talking about in a way. Yeah uh, Tom as you said uh, earlier on it really is all about growth or we wish it was all about growth um guys thank you both very much indeed for joining us hopefully our next edition of the capex podcast will be in person and won't be derailed uh, by the rmt <laughs> ha 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 uh, stay tuned for more great puns like that thanks a lot guys it's also been a tumultuous week across the channel where france's parliamentary elections saw emmanuel macron's En Marche movement lose its majority amid a surge for Marine Le Pen's national rally and for the ragtag of left-wing parties led by the man some call the French Jeremy Corbyn, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. To run the rule over those results and what they mean for Macron's second term, I caught up with CapEx contributor Gavin Mortimer, who joined us from Paris. I began by asking Gavin just how bad things have got for Emmanuel Macron. Emmanuel Macron's in trouble. Uh, very interesting to see last night, he made a televised address to the nation, lasted only eight minutes, which was uncharacteristically short. The two words you heard a lot were 
respect and responsibility. And he was really, as has been made plain um, subsequently by his opponent, trying to sort of turn it onto the the the, Repu the uh, well the Republicans, the centre right, and particularly the Noops, the uh, the left wing coalition led by Mélenchon, and of course the National Rally led by Marine Le Pen. In other words, you've got to work with me for the good of France, and if you don't, you're being irresponsible. Um, that hasn't gone down well, but I think it's it's a sign really of how much Macron's opponents are relishing the situation. Uh, they've got him by the short and curlies, and um, they are going to uh, not let him squirm away. And he's already had the idea of a national coalition rejected. Um, uh, he's had the proposal of a, of a coalition with the uh, centre coming that pleases the the centre right and, and Marine Le Pen's party, uh, immigration, for example, uh, try and use their support. And, and likewise with uh, with with the left, if it's uh, a, a more, a, say, an environmental policy, um, but it really has um, uh, diminished his power. And in terms of the results, I mean, the big winners were Marine Le Pen's uh, national rally. They call themselves now. They used to be called the National Front, and they've had a pretty successful rebrand. Then you mentioned the Noops, which is a kind of motley crew of left wing parties spearheaded by. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who some people call a kind of French Corbyn, which I think slightly oversimplifies things. But yes. I mean, what's going on here? Is there a big difference in the voting patterns between these elections and the presidential elections, which Emmanuel Macron won fairly handily? Well, first thing to say, I mean, one, one interesting takeaway is that the left wing vote in the parliamentary elections didn't, was more or less the same in 2017 and 2022. The difference this time, as, as you mentioned, John, is that, of course, Mélenchon has um, achieved what many thought was impossible and uniting the left. Now, how united is that left? Well, there are already signs of fractures among the, uh, the communists, the Greens, the socialists, and um, his La France Insoumise. Um, they got 131 seats in total, the Newts, um, of which 72 were La France uh, Insoumise. So they're the majority party. Um, but uh, then you've got yeah, the, the, the National Rally, who really were the big winners. Um, eight seats in 2000, well, two seats in 2012, eight seats in 2017, and 89 seats in 2022. Um, the pollsters last week were saying at the very most they'll get 50, more likely around about 30. So they have really surprised everyone and it's, it's, it's a sign that the Republican front, um, which has been in place uh, really I suppose uh, in, since uh, 2002 when uh, Marine Le Pen's father Jean-Marie um, shot France by getting through to a second round runoff in the presidential election with, with Jack Chirac. Um, that's held firm ever since, but, but not now. Um, and so that's, that's the, and of course, then at the same time, you've got Emmanuel Macron's party um, on March, then rebranded uh, re uh, Renaissance. Um, they picked up just 150 seats, so a loss of uh, 150 seats. So, in, so yeah in half of the mathematicians among you, um, from in five years. So he's a real big loser. Now, why he won the presidential election? 
beating Marine Le Pen really more comfortably than uh, many people expected, myself included. I remember John talking to you um, uh, between the first and the second rounds in April of the presidential election. And I said, oh, I thought it'd probably be about five, six percent. In the end, it was, I think, what, 18 percent. So um, that was a, a comfy margin. But of course, the presidential election is, is much more about the figurehead of France. And, mm. and Marine Le Pen, she will, you know, she struggles, uh, particularly among you know, sort of centre left of voters to shake off the family name. Um, it's just seen as too toxic, even though she's, she's really, her strategy in the last decade has been to demonise de her party. And, you know, she, she's done that to a large extent, but, but not Macron. Um, and of course, at the time, he was still um, hope, hopeful of, of persuading Putin to come to the, ta to the table. That didn't work. His, his policy has been a, a, a failure vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. So, uh, the, and of course, the, the other thing I think worth mentioning um, about the parliamentary elections with regard to the uh, national rally is that a lot of the MPs are unknown. So they're not called Le Pen, obviously. And when it came to head-to-head um, duels. -head it was quite interesting in the second round of a parliamentary election. It was quite interesting to see that when it was, for example, a, um, a new left-wing candidate against uh, a national rally candidate, um, Macron supporters overwhelmingly abstained, 72%. 16% voted for the left-wing candidate, 12% for the right-wing candidate for Le Pen's party, so that just shows you that uh, shows you how much the Republican front has crumbled, um, and uh, that I think explains uh, to a large extent why Le Pen's party did well in the parliamentaries, but she didn't do well in the head-to-head -head with Macron. Yeah, you mentioned um, lots of voters abstaining there. Let's talk about turnout for a bit because it struck me looking at the results that the turnout was really very low. I mean, is this par for the course for parliamentary elections or was this year particularly bad? And does that reflect a sense of political apathy and strife in France that's, that's got worse in recent years? It's, it wasn't that much, the, the abstention rate wasn't that much different to 2017. Um, it was about 54% this, this year. Um, and I mean, one has to feel a certain sympathy, John, for the French. They've this is their fourth um, election last Sunday, the second round of the parliamentary's fourth election in what two months, um, and they're fed up with it. But I think more pertinently is the fact that they felt, and this is reflected in polls, that they felt the issues they cared about were not being discussed in the campaign. So particularly, um, uh, Macron was most guilty of this, according to uh, uh, the polls. Uh, the cost of living crisis and the health crisis. We hear a lot in the, in the UK about um, the, the NHS crisis and waiting lists, it's exactly the same in France. You know, the, the days of the French health system being held up as, uh, as uh, an example to follow are, are long gone. And, um, and, and these issues really weren't um, discussed. And, and I think Macron really suffered by putting the emphasis on Ukraine. Um, and he, he got a shock in, um, in March when the polls began to, when he was uh, at, the heart, at the height of his shuttle diplomacy. 
um, that um, uh, when Le Pen was, was closing the gap. Um, and but he didn't learn his lesson. And just last week, he thought the best way in between rounds of the parliamentary elections to boost his support was to jet off to, uh, to Kiev for a photo opportunity with Zelensky. And, but the, the, the French, 18% of them said that they're, they're, they're concerned about what's going on in, in Ukraine. Of course, they, they, they're disturbed by the television pictures, but understandably, they're more concerned about the cost of petrol, inflation, inflation the cost of everyday goods, um, the, the health system, as I mentioned. And, um, and, and these concerns weren't really reflected in the um, campaigning, except by Le Pen, and to a lesser extent, Mélenchon, who really focused in on the cost of living crisis, uh, that was their reward. And, and Macron was punished by a huge uh, drop in the number of his MPs. Well, it's good to know that things are going just as chaotically over in France as they are here in the UK. Thank you as ever for joining us on the CapEx podcast. Do be sure to spread the word about the podcast on your social media and good old fashioned word of mouth. And we'll see you next Friday for another episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.